Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. If there's one thing that describes our podcast, it's it's living the dream. <laughs> it's, it's the uh, right. What's your what dream? Let's have a dream based episode. Let's have a dream theme. Oh, I don't really remember dreams. Can't really. Do you not? I mean, see, I'm no. a pretty good dream rememberer. No, I actually, I someone I was speaking with the other day was surprised to hear that I lucid dream fairly often, um, like multiple times per week. Well, I, so I don't really know what a lucid dream is. That is a dream in which, and I am, I know nothing about dream science, but I have been told it is a dream in which you recognize that you're dreaming and thus can control the things going on in your dream. Huh? Yeah, no, I don't think I've ever done that. Really? I mean, Unless I'm just missing it, and that's actually just when I think I'm awake, that's what's actually happening. <laughs> okay, we're getting a bit. We're I can't pull that out here. Um, hello, sometimes, dear. Sometimes I suddenly feel <laughs> like, what? How did I get here? <laughs> Maybe I've actually been asleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! One day he woke up and he was inside of that really cool secret cupboard behind him. <laughs> disguised as a bookshelf yeah you ready you ready to do this thing or yeah we're doing it already aren't we <laughs> it's too late to back down now hello dearies welcome to undersampled radio episode as i b- believe 87 is that right matt yes uh, yeah plus or minus yeah whatever uh okay so no fireworks for you today folks we are not at episode 100 um, but we will. We are preparing the nine one one call uh, for that day. Um, we have an exciting episode for you today because basically we were really bad at planning this episode and show notes. So, with no further ado, I'm going to let Matt give an introduction to the show notes. What's happening in the world, Matt? Told in the theme of dreams, by the way. <laughs> um, I think I just uh, blacked out there for a second, or my internet did. It's it's funny when you're speaking, Graham, because the projector's pointing directly at at us, at yeah. the camera. Can you? Is it right? It gives yeah. me this weird impression that like somehow we're a projection. <laughs> Anyway, there's some sort of inception thing going on. Um, who are we really? Yeah, well, uh, not too much. I see you've got some ah proto benchmark data sets. Yeah, there has been some benchmark action. I think it's all been in the machine learning channel in S- Software Underground. Um, Lucas Mossa stays on top of the archive pretty effectively. 
and has posted a couple of papers recently, about maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, um, where where people are publishing what I guess they hope will become benchmark data sets for Penobscot. Um, and recently there was also a data set um, on the F3 seismic cube. Yeah, and they've basically done some interpretation, you know, sort of, they're sort of zone-based interpretations. So it's like layers. They're fairly gross intervals. There's maybe six or eight of them in the whole cube. Um, and it looks kind of interesting. And then they've sort of, I guess, done some kind of um, neural net implementation to try to predict those, those intervals. They've used them as labels, which, you know, sounds reasonable, but I've been a bit lukewarm about them because, well, they're just interpretations, right? So you can, e even the sort of one or two sections that they published in the paper, I look at it and go, well, I wouldn't have interpreted like that. Um, so that's obviously an issue, the subjectivity of the labels. And, and then it just feels a little bit sort of, I don't know, a little bit circular, like let's, yeah label up something that that the machine can then predict i don't know i don't know so i'm not sure how i feel about them yet but i haven't really i haven't downloaded them to look at them i've just looked at the these papers did okay, you take so a look no i did not but here's here's something for you to consider that we've been thinking about recently which is if you have some sort of subjective labeling system can you eventually increase the convergence to reality if you have like at a future time state the some some fresher label eventually converging on what is presumably truth so for instance if you had an interpretation built a model to predict that interpretation and at a later time updated the so-called labels a bit closer and closer towards reality, let's say in this case, as you drilled wells, I suppose, your interpretation mm. would get better and better. Hmm. Have you, so that reminds me of this, um, the image of this black hole at the center of M87. Have you looked at that very much? That it new? has been contaminating many a Slack channel. Yeah. But do, have you read much about the method of imagery reconstruction? No. Nope. It's quite interesting. Um, the the woman that's you know been uh, I guess getting some of the attention for coming up with the algorithm did a TED talk on it a little while ago, which was nice because it's very accessible because <laughs> it's not too technical, and she does a really good job of. Um, well, not, you know, not dumbing it down exactly, but just explaining in sort of layman's terms what, how the algorithm works. And it's, it, I mean, fundamentally, it's, um, you know, I mean, I, it, it's that they've got this sparse, sparsely sampled image, and then they try to reconstruct plausible image because it's a completely uh, ill posed problem, right? So there's an infinite yeah. number of solutions that will match the observations because they've got observations from what is it like 
seven or nine radio telescopes, I think, um, at multiple points through time. So it's not just literally seven or nine points. It's like lots of points in there because the Earth's rotating. They're, they're sort of low-key of uh, observations, but still, it's really sparse. Um, but what they do is they essentially sort of trained a model to, you know, that, that knows what images look like sort of thing. Uh, and they train different models on like images from simulated black holes, astronomical images in general, and then completely general images of natural scenes. Hmm. And the idea is that if those models predict similar things, then probably your image is reasonable, right? Because they've got different priors. Um, if they sort of have convergent, like if they agree, then it seems reasonable to sort of suppose that it might be a good reconstruction because then they're not too biased by what they sort of know about. Makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's an example of somebody trying to image something which they don't, they, you don't know what it is, but you know what kind of characteristics it has. And so you can kind of bootstrap, given some data, you can kind of um, inch your way towards plausible reconstructions, which is a bit like what we're trying to do with geology, right? Yep. Um, yeah, I, I like I like the idea of anything sort of iterative. I also, you know, because like we've relaunched Pick this recently, wonder if you can just get lots of different opinions. Um, you know, how can you sample the solution space, so to speak, and not have to rely on a single interpretation as a bunch of labels? Anyway, we'll see what the community makes of these benchmarks, I guess. Cool. The only one that's really taken off, the only benchmark in our base that's really taken off is the one from Brendan's paper, uh, you know, yeah. the leading edge, like October 2016, I think it was. Um, and, you know, that's not an open data set, unfortunately. So it's like, but it's but it's been getting used over and over and over again. It's been in dozens of papers already. So um, I guess that's what that's what will happen is the community will decide if they like it or not. And, and off it will ship. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Do you want to introduce our guest today? Um, yeah, sure. Bain. So Bain Sullivan, um, to be honest, I only know through the Software Underground. And um, he's especially popped up around anything to do with sort of visualization and especially 3D viz. Um, and you know, so we did the hackathon on visualization. I, was that last year? Yeah, it was. Was that last year? <laughs> that seems like an age ago, but yeah, I guess it was last year. Um, and you know, so since and then I think that was roughly when the Viz channel started. And um, yeah, I just uh, because he's involved in a couple of um, interesting sounding open projects that sort of revolve around VTK and um, that framework. Um, and because the question of how do I visualize this stuff in 3D, especially for seismic uh, and surfaces and things comes up quite a bit, 
I thought it would be fun to um, fun to have him on and find out what he's about and how on earth he gets time to work on all these cool sounding projects. Um, so hi, Bain. Hi, thanks for having me today. Yeah, yeah, no worries, welcome. Um, so where are you? I am in Golden, Colorado, at the Colorado School of Mines. Okay, and you're a student there, or you're a? Yes, I am a first year master's student right now. I, I've been here for, I guess, going on five years now. I've, uh, I did my undergraduate, undergraduate degree here in geophysics and uh, did a minor in CS during that time and just stayed on in the, in the geophysics and hydrology program here. Okay, cool. What's your, what's, do you know what your topic for thesis is yet? I am formulating that right now, um, but it all sort of is in this visualization realm. And how do we use visualization as a means of communicating findings and geoscientific problems? And, and how can we build a framework or build a tool set uh, that geoscientists can use to inspect their data and to gain insight from their data and then communicate their findings? Cool. Yeah, that is an atypical thesis experiment for a geoscientist, I would say. I think so, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm excited to see, uh, you know, what kind of pushback I get on it because it's not, you know, entirely geoscience, but it's, it's very much something valuable to the geoscience community. So, so I'm excited to move forward with it. And, um, do, do you have buy-in from your from your uh, advisors, et cetera? I mean, is there some? Yeah. 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 Um, Formulating the committee right now, um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of buy-in here on campus because people are realizing sort of the lack of tools available, um, or at least open tools available for researchers and, and geoscientists to visualize their data. And yeah. um, and I think a lot of people here are, are realizing the utility it brings um, to just working on their projects and going back and forth on why why isn't this inversion running right? And you know, looking at your model in real time and like just trying to figure things out. Visualization just plays a, a critical role in all of that. That's great, and it seems like you can use your research while you're researching, right? So sort of disseminate it amongst the community and see if you know get user feedback or so, you know whatever you would call that. Yeah, yeah, that's how it's been going. What's so, what's the name of the tool? Is it PVGeo? So there's a whole lot of these things going around right now. Um, I have them all up on GitHub. PVGeo is where it all started. Um, and so that was just sort of a whole bunch of VTK visualization toolkit, VTK based algorithms to sort of bring your geoscience data into the VTK framework. Um, and also algorithms to do transformations on your data, things like coordinate conversions or ways to integrate different data sets in, a, in sort of a context that makes sense for geoscience. Um, so PVGeo is just sort of an extension package to the, to the VTK suite of, of visualization software. But, the thing I've been most focused on lately is VTKI, which is the interface to the VTK, just a yeah. short Python package that calls back to VTK and, and makes 3D visualization really accessible and intuitive to, to novice programmers. Hmm. That's excellent. That is, that's cool. So what kind of stuff are you uh, running so as, as you're developing? What, what are you testing against? What, what type of data? Uh, so VTK, VTKI. Um, that tool set's super general. It doesn't have to be geoscience. It doesn't have to be any specific data domain. Uh, it can be anything that's spatially referenced or has coordinates, whatever the coordinate reference frame that is. Um, so we have a bunch of random sample data sets for VTKI, which we put up in, a, in an examples gallery on the on the documentation website there. Things like, a, you know, a triangulated mesh of a cow or um, things like 
topography DEMs that are in 2D that we are in 2D that we can like warp and, and filter and do things like that. So VTKI, we just super simple data sets, anything we can get our hands on that has a spatial reference. And then PVGO, I try to find geo data sets, but it's been that's been like my biggest hurdle so far is is what data sets can I, you know, put up on a repository and use in my tests and then distribute as an example because everything in geoscience is closed source or pr proprietary and it's, that's been a, a huge hurdle for me. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it just comes up again and again, doesn't it? <laughs> are, you, are you working, is there like a team of you or are you kind of a, a, a lone <laughs> shark out there doing visualization uh, <laughs> stuff or because I haven't, I mean, I don't pay all that much attention to the sort of subsurface visualization space, but I mean, I haven't been aware of anyone else at Minds doing that kind of stuff before. No, um, I guess I've been more of the lone shark or lone wolf for a while, especially yeah. PVGO. I started that during my undergrad um, and just sort of continued it. And I've pretty much been the only person to work on that. Um, a few people have, you know, added a few features on GitHub to it being open source. VTKI, however, that was initially started by Alex Kaczynski. He is uh, just another another researcher, not in the geosciences at all. Um, so he started VTKI, and I sort of came on board and, and decided, okay, let's let's expand this. Let's make it super general. Let's work, you know, let's truly interface the whole VTK library. And um, I've been sort of taking the lead on the development for that lately. And mm. uh, so it's it's pretty much just been myself, Alex, and um, Whoever wants to make pull requests, and uh, yeah, is is Alex at Mines as well? No, he is in Germany. Um, he works. I think he's an independent contractor, but um, yeah, just uh, I found his his repo online and made a pull request and and thought, you know what, this is this is easy to use. I'm gonna I'm gonna just expand it, and we just four months later here we are. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Um, so what, how, like, what, what, when did you, are you, you, like, I'm just wondering when you started programming and how much you've had to learn or teach yourself since you started? I mean, because Viz is a whole other can of worms, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's... Had to learn a ton. Yeah, uh, I would say it was a struggle. It was a challenge at the beginning. Um, uh, I started all of this work in the visualization realm my, you know, my senior year of undergraduate program. So that was um, almost two years ago now. Okay. Um, and that was actually the first time I started working in Python. Uh, oh. Before that, I did a bunch of Java development in um, C++. And then I switched to Python, fell in love with it because it's just an awesome language and it's really accessible and there's so many tools out there. Um, so I, I learned Python. Uh, you know, over the course of that year. And, um, you know, halfway through that process of learning Python, all of a sudden I was doing Python software development with PVGO. And it was more or less just me trying to figure things out as I go, lots of Google searching, lots of reading very poorly written documentation on other libraries. And um, it was, I really just had to get comfortable with the that whole notion of um, just knowing absolutely nothing until you do. <laughs> But so, like, is VTKI written in Python? Yes. So VTKI is pure Python. Um, oh, okay. And yeah, so the VTK library, they have um, Python bindings. Yeah. Um, but those bindings are, are 
pretty much the exact same code. Like if you write viz code in Python right now with just the VTK library, it looks the exact same thing or same way as its C++ counterpart. Okay. Um, and so what we basically have done here is just uh, inherited all of the types from the VTK Python bindings, expanded them, uh, made them really accessible so you don't have to go through all these cumbersome routines that make sense in C++, but you know, just don't make sense in Python. So we just, just expanded on that library a ton. Okay, so you're not having to, you're not having to write anything except Python, and you don't have to kind of know anything about OpenGL because that's taken care of by VTK or the VTK. Yeah, yeah and it, all the OpenGL stuff, all that Viz stuff, it's really complicated that uh, you know a geoscientist doesn't have time to to dive into. Is all handled by VTK, and that that was kind of the point I was getting at when I started all this is geoscience data isn't special. It's no. points, it's voxels, it's lines. Mm -hmm. There's you know there's triangulated meshes in geoscience. Like it's nothing special in the realm of visualization. So why not use an already robust, tested, and um, expansive visualization framework for geoscience data? Like we don't need to make our own special suite of viz tools for geoscience data. Um, so so if we can just use VTKI or VTK through something like VTKI and then provide that link from VTKI to geoscience, then there we have, we have a, a huge framework for visualization in the geosciences. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Is there some notion of, um, of a finished state or a, a particular experiment you want to accomplish? Or like, what's, what, is there, what's the future state look like uh, for this project? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I want to, I guess I've started this a little bit, get a bunch of geoscience-related data, geophysical data, geospatial data, for one very big project, um, and just create a, an example of, okay, this is what VTKI and PVGO and like the other tools I put out there for all this biz stuff can do if we bring them all together. Um, and just have like a set of Jupyter notebooks up online that people can check them out and, and reproduce the same visualizations. So I started that a little bit on, on um, one of the repos next to PVGO, um, mm -hmm. where we have a geothermal site with a whole bunch of, of open access data um, that I've, I've written like routines to parse the data as it comes from the geothermal data repository, get it into the data structures we want it in, and then it's in VGKI, and we, I have um, sort of a notebook that steps through like five different visualizations of all this data. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I guess that's my my goal right now is I need to showcase all this with with open data. Cool. And does um, so it, it sounds like the your VTKI is also playing nicely with Jupiter. Is that right in that environment? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. So everything works in a Jupyter notebook. That's how I do all of my scripting. Like if I'm working on a project. Um, for like school or research or whatever, I'm in a Jupyter Notebook. But if I'm doing a software development, I'm in like Atom or I'm in an IDE. Um, so yeah, so and so is every other geoscientist that I'm working with here at Mines. They are all in Jupyter Notebooks um, doing <laughs> Python. So I was like, this tool has to work in a Jupyter Notebook, whether that means, you know, popping up a separate visualization window outside a notebook. Like we, if that's what we have to do, then we'll do that. Um, but we also have some rudimentary inline 3D visualization stuff going right now. Is it interactive in line? Yes. So we so have. Would, um, would you like render a JavaScript object or how do you? Yes. Um, so VTKJS is a JavaScript library that's um, built on top of VTK. So brought a whole VTK library over JavaScript. 
Um, and uh, I've basically just can, um, I, I created an exporting script that goes from, from the VTKI rendering window that we have um, and exports to that VTKJS framework. The other thing is Panel and Boca. They mm -hmm. recently did the same thing where they can take any VTK rendering window and then embed it into a panel frame in a Jupyter Notebook. And so mm -hmm. I've, I've uh, added some stuff on the master branch of VTKI that links over to the panel code. So if you have panel installed and you're in a Jupyter Notebook, automatically the renderings pop out as an interactive inline 3D plot. Um, they're rudimentary. They're not publication quality plots in the notebook, but um, but it's a great way to rapidly inspect your data, see the results of a filter, and just move on. Yeah. Very nice. That's really awesome. Um, it, so it sounds like uh, it sounds like Python's taken off at Minds because I, I always think of Java uh, when I think of Minds. Um, <laughs> but is that that's changing? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so I think you know the geophysics department here at Mines has, has gone through a lot of changes in the past year or so, year or two, hmm. and um, with that, a lot of technological changes and realizing we need to we need to we need to jump on a Python bandwagon. So I think pretty much everyone here is working on Python. Oh wow! Um, and the Mat the MATLAB folks are still struggling to to catch up, but they're on their way. Um, and, what, <laughs> what, it, and there are geologists writing code as well. Uh, yes, one or no. Um, yeah, a handful. I, I, I can speak for the geophysicists. I don't think I can speak for the geologists so much. Um, I think that that department, they're mostly still in the MATLAB space um, and all that. Okay, yeah, well, there's, um, uh, I guess, a few folks um, that seem to be working with Zane Job mm -hmm. uh, yeah. that, that I know are in Python. Um, hacking around and doing some interesting stuff with uh, logs and things that I'm interested in. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, w you know, we had, I guess the first teams of students we had come to some of the early hackathons, like in 2014 um, and 15 came from mines and they were, they left a real impression because they were so smart and, um, such a great team, <laughs> you know, they just they, yeah. they clearly wanted to have fun and do something cool. And um, yeah, but anyway, they just made a real impression on me. I was like, wow, mine's, mine's students are awesome. Um, so I'm, but they were all in Java at the time. because this was five years ago. Because um, <laughs> they were using Dave Hill's kit, right? They were using, yeah, mine's JTK. Yeah. Um, so, which, you know, I like, I wonder, is, is that being ported to Python, maybe? Because it seemed like it had some pretty cool stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember like, two years ago, I played around in there because when I was doing a lot of Java development, uh, but I haven't touched it since then. Um, I, I don't know, maybe someone is. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I can't really read Java, otherwise I might be interested in having a go at that myself, but um, it's open source, right? I mean, it's most of the case out there. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, you know, I I don't know if you guys typically do this on the show, but I could screen share and show what I was talking about about the inline three D viz. Do it. I would love yeah. to see it. And what we'll do is cool. we'll, we'll talk through it as you share. And so we'll what's even to listeners? Yeah. Uh, what's even better is. Um, all of this is available for anyone to do on a bind binder. 
Um, so if you guys want to do it as well, you can also pull it up. But I'll, I'll go ahead and screen share however we do that. Um, yeah, that's sure. cool. I've been brushing up on my Viz skills myself. I, uh, my, I've been, I've been getting my awful JavaScript a little bit less awful. And I started <laughs> okay, D3 yeah, so you've been playing with uh, with D three. That's fun. Yeah, I've been trying to do some stuff for customer projects because if you're, I feel limited with the canned, you know, JavaScript output types of tools that we use in data science, like. They're great up to a certain point, and then they fall over because you need more functionality. And yeah, cool. Uh, you guys can see me, right? We can see your screen. See my screen. Sweet. So, um, so yeah, just to go back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, um, all this inline plotting things working with Jupyter notebooks. I've put together a um, uh, on the VTKI site. So if you go to VTKI, um, you can go to our quick examples and go through a bunch of things. Uh, that show off kind of what BDKI can do, which is a bunch of sample data sets. So like, here's that simple triangulated mesh of a cow I talked about. There's a, a training image for some geostat um, stuff. And um, yeah, we have all these examples. So what's really awesome is click the line binder, and it will launch everything I bind. Uh, we have open, so I'll just go back to it, and you can just go in here, check out all those examples that are in a gallery um, that are updated in real time, and, and okay. play around with the notebooks. So, so yeah, you can be in a Jupyter Notebook, import the VTI module. We have a whole bunch of example data sets you can use in the examples module for VTI. And um, in the, here in this line, I just uh, I download the St. Helens data set. Um, and then from there, I apply a filter called Warp by Scalar, which takes this 2D image that is my, mesh, my um, St. Helens data set, warps it so it looks like a realistic topography map. Um, and then I can just say mesh.plot. I'm going to apply a, a linear opacity mapping onto it, and we'll see what that does. Um, so I just hit Shift Enter and ran the cell, and uh, it's, it's talking to the server and figuring out what's going on. And here we are with a, a topography map. Very um, cool. Yeah, so cool. what we're seeing here for podcast listeners is an interactive inline visualization in the notebook. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think this is this is huge. Um, when I first got this working, I was ecstatic, and um, and yeah, it's up and running. Anyone can come to this this um, binder the hub and uh, interact with all of our examples. Very nice. Can you show us an example of what it looks like for the pop out? So what what additional functionality you get when you're not doing it inline? The simple demo. Yeah. Um, Let's uh, let's do it. Let's see. I have a thousand of these notebooks with examples. Um, I see your tests are passing. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, always want that. So. I think what's a what's a good example that has some volumetric data? Let's try this. Um, so I've also put out another package called OMFVTK, which takes the open mining format and uh, brings it all to VTKI. Um, so I'm just gonna 
run through this example notebook I built for that project, OMF EDK. Um, have you guys heard of OMF? Yeah. Um, uh, what's his name? Rowan's team was working with that, right, when we spoke with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so here I just use my OMF BTK library to read an OMF file, um, which is just like a project file full of data sets and whatnot. Um, so here it is in the BTKI multi-block data set. Um, and I can just go ahead and start visualizing stuff. And so I'm just grabbing data from that database. And, um, you know, there's some assay data. And here, let's, let's create a, a pop-out window and uh, do a split screen. So yeah, that was super fast. Oh, geez. We'll figure out how to get Chrome to work. There we go. Um, so there, that was that cell right there. I just did this VTKI threshold thing, tool, which is, uh, it creates the interactive window right adjacent to your notebook, um, which is interactive while you code. So you can add things, remove things, um, apply filters like this threshold. There's mm -hmm. a little a little IPython widget. I can threshold this volumetric data set. Um, so just, uh, show what it what it started out as like a, a big volume of data right. um, how much data is this that we're looking visualizing like the size of the mesh yeah um let's see uh what this is that volume data so i can just add in a cell so i just plotted that that volume object which is a probably a rectilinear grid and it's got um, about a million cells, 1.6 million cells. Nice. Um, and so yeah, let's let's you know that's cool. One volume thresholded. Let's add some more stuff to that. Uh, so I just added some grids to see my coordinate system. I can add some topo and some uh, with a nice texture on it with satellite imagery. Um, I got some fault planes in there. And uh, yeah, let's add some wells. Uh oh. Ignore that. Live live demo. <laughs> um, yeah, whoops. I haven't touched this notebook in a while. So I probably broke something. Very cool. Very yeah, cool. I love how you can uh, just keep that uh, window there and sort of interact with it from the notebook. Um, that's really, really nice kind of workflow. Um, yeah. yeah. I think a lot of... A lot of people, and myself included, you know, I mean, the first the first thing I reach for for visualization is Matplotlib, and it's not very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, Matplotlib's amazing for two D visualization. Their three D three D viz is is great if you're a pure data scientist. I think where you're you're looking at you know meaningless data when it comes to how it's spatially referenced. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you want to do things like look at geoscience data, um, I don't think Matplotlib can cut it. No. No, this is very nice. I'll, so uh, so I'll, I'd give you a master's degree for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's what I want to hear. Uh. <laughs> very cool. Uh, so how does um, we have a note in here about AR and VR? Do you think are, are you wedging the AR VR? buzz into this project yeah um maybe this would have been a, a good discussion point to have at the beginning um because this is how everything started here mm -hmm. so when i was an undergraduate starting to get working on this my current advisor she reached out to me at the time and told me she was interested in, in bringing geoscience bringing geophysics 
into virtual reality. That was kind of like, that's all it was. And we were like, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's, let's bring geophysics into VR. And then uh, I tried it, realized I know nothing about visualization or virtual reality or anything. And that's how all this started. It was like, okay, I have to provide that link to get geoscience data, one, visualized, and then two, be able to send that visualization to VR. Hmm. And um, luckily, VTK and Paraview, um, which is just, Paraview is just the graphical user interface to VTK, um, they support VR already. So once you can bring everything into this, this VTK realm of data visualization or model visualization, then you can just send it over to VR with like a few clicks of a mouse. Um, huh. so that's how really, that's how all this started. That's fascinating. So do you have a rig? Do you have a VR setup in the office that you can test some of this stuff in? Yeah, we do. Um, yeah, and I have some videos of me flying around in VR with some geoscience data online on Vimeo and on the PVGO website. So yeah, What's so PV, PVGO, the, the PV in there stands for Paraview, and then Geo, or Geoscience. Yeah. Um, and that's how that's why I started making PVGO, is let's get all the geoscience data in the Paraview. And once it's in Paraview, you can just click a little button that says send to OpenVR, and, um, and that sends it over to your HTC Vive if you have it hooked up. And so we have a nice gaming laptop and a, an HTC Vive, and you know, we've, we've done quite a bit of, of VR visualization of geoscience data. Are there, who's using your various toolkits, VR included, uh, in their workflows? Do you, is there a group at Minds that's using this stuff now? Um, I have a handful of um, sort of like colleagues and friends here that are using like VTKI and PBGO here and there. Um, it's been sort of slow to get people to adapt a new tool just because one, you have to learn something new while you're already busy. Um, and two, I'm fixing bugs and things like that all the time. So that can be frustrating for a, a novice programmer or someone unfamiliar with the library. Um, as far as anyone using the VR stuff, um, it's pretty much just been me. It's been a, we're trying to figure out a use case for it. We have the equipment, we have the software. Um, we just don't really know what to do with it at this point because it's, it's been really hard to find a way that VR sort of adds a scientific benefit to your, to your research workflow. Um, it's been kind of gimmicky. It's, um, you know, I think it's so far, it's been a really good tool for just communicating to the non-scientists what we're doing. Exactly, um, that's what I was suggest. Yeah, um, so that's, that's where we've used it the most is uh, just trying to communicate to project planners or um, just people without the geophysics background or geology background, sort of what subsurface data means um, so it's, it's been really useful to, to get the VR set up, throw some topography data in there, throw like wells, throw a subsurface resource model or geostatistical model of some sort, put it all in the VR and then, and then hand that headset over to someone and they can fly around in it and they start to really gain a, a perspective of what, what that data means and, mm -hmm. and, and why maybe decisions were being made. So that's sort of where we've gone with it, but it's been really hard to prove its worth in like a, a research workflow. Hmm. It seems like um, a lot of the folks I've met who seem really interested in AR and VR are in the sort of virtual outcrop um, area. Is there? Is there any, I'm sure there's someone on Minds uh, who's into that kind of that kind of thing. Have you have you played around with that sort of data yet? Like the so AR stuff. Um, um, yeah, AR and. Um, I, I, and I feel like, yeah, VR as well. Um, but constructing outcrops 
and also being able to, you know, because I guess the interesting things to do there aren't just like making the visualization of the outcrop, it's then like integrating it with, say, structural data or mineralogical data, or hyperspectral imaging, those mm -hmm. sorts of things, which can be quite difficult, I guess, to, you know, to integrate that with a bunch of 2D displays. They make much more sense in 3D um, stratigraphy as well. Um, so I haven't seen anybody, like all I've seen is people reconstructing basic, you know, with just LIDAR and photography. Um, but the, I think those are prerequisites to getting to that next level, you know, where you've actually got all this other data um, to integrate. But yeah, I mean, is that, have you played around with that sort of stuff at all? I've tried. Um, I haven't played around too much and I'm not too aware of many other people doing it. Um, just okay. sort of hasn't been the space I've been in, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if if you have data, we can put it in the VR. So, right. <laughs> you know, it's that's that it used to be non-trivial, but now at this point, you know, it's pretty straightforward to get it there. Right. Um, so, yeah. yeah. No, there was a team, I guess most of the team were from a consultancy, actually in Germany. Um, but they were doing AR with virtual outcrops at our hackathon last year in Copenhagen and doing things like putting the outcrop sort of on a table, um, you know, at a sort of room scale. So it was all about, um, well, it was two things. They wanted to get the scaling right. And then they wanted to get the multiple simultaneous viewpoints so that different people could kind of walk around the same object, uh -huh. point at things, and for that to make sense to both of them sort of thing from their different points of view. Um, so that, yeah, there's a video floating around, I think, uh, in our hackathon report. But um, like I say, the really interesting stuff is in the sort of analysis that comes later that might not itself depend on visualization but i think making sense of the results of the analysis will only make sense when you can like see the data all together right right so yeah um call to action on on software underground i think is in order here yeah, yeah. i think of three or four people on software underground who are definitely interested in that space and the i don't know if i dare talk about it in public but the uh the computational field camp idea uh, is back on the uh, back on the table. Uh, um, so <laughs> we're hoping it was so. Bain, this was the thing that I bailed on uh, last year. Um, but the idea was to do a hackathon, but in the field with like drones and GPR oh. and hyperspectral cameras and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, 50% kind of geeks with laptops and 50% geeks with <laughs> and uh, monkey wrenches or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, all, uh, you know, I know who all those people are. Um, and maybe you're one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think your Viz stuff would fit really well into that. Yeah. Anyway, it's going to be in Spain next spring. I... Okay will hold my breath. <laughs> yeah. For now, you should probably hold your breath. Yeah. But, uh, that's yeah. cool. It's got to happen. It's a thing that has to happen. So, yes. you know, we just have to make it happen. That's all. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
I want to b- before we before we run out of time. I want to hear about a little one-liner note that you put in the show notes, Matt, about hanging on market Markov chains to stay sane. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem like the thing that it would keep people sane. What's the, what's the story there? Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, well, f- um, well, actually, so it comes back to this strip log tool, which Thomas Martin and uh, um, Jeff, ah, I can't remember his name. Um, another chap at, at Mines have been hacking on a bit recently. Um, and the question has come up a couple of times too on Twitter. People are like, what are people using to for like stratigraphic columns and um, sedimentary logs uh, and representing stuff like that? And we wrote this thing, strip log for doing that. It's got horrible visualization. Uh, it's you know very sort of rudimentary but one of the things you'd like to be able to do with these sedimentary logs is um, analyze the sequence in some way so you know a comes after B comes after C uh, and specifically you'd like to know is there um, some sort of organization to those sequences and what is that organization so this is you know this is sort of what stratigraphers do with intuition and um what you'd like is some computational kind of backup i guess uh, or other ways to explore those sorts of questions and markov chains have been used for that for quite a while in sedimentology um but as with a lot of things in geology you know these tools are in the hands of sort of non-statisticians most of the time so people do slightly wonky things with them um and there, there is a kind of established like best way to do it um so i thought i'd try and code code that up um from this paper from like 1982 or something um well once you've got the markov chain stuff working you can do a couple of things you can make a graph with weighted edges where the weights correspond to the degree of essentially it's how unusual is this transition Mm -hmm. compared to um the transitions that you would get in a random sequence with the same proportions as the sequence that you have, if that makes sense. Sure. So you sort of, you look at what you've got and you compare it to a, um, a, ra- a random sequence and, and it, where it's substantially different, um, you can sort of say, well, that's unusual. That's, that's information. information. That's information, exactly. So you can make a graph out of that. Um, I'm really interested in that because once you've got a graph like that, you can use that potentially as a cost function if you're trying to predict these sequences. Um, and you know maybe it can play with some sort of machine learning, uh, sequence learning algorithm later. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a black hole. There's like hidden Markov models where some of the states of the system are unknown, essentially. So you can try to model things that way. There's also, you can sort of say, well, um, maybe the state of the system doesn't just depend on the last thing, but it depends on 
the two last things or the three last things. So you can kind of have this memory kind of concept. Um, so this will keep me busy for, <laughs> but just why to stay sane? It was really just like, because otherwise sometimes at the moment, I feel like I'm just doing busy work. So mm. <laughs> if I'm making a few commits to get up repo from time to time, I at least feel like I've contributed something. <laughs> to the world i don't know good well i'm glad that you're on it <laughs> something to do isn't it it is um we always have a question at the end which we ask all of our guests Bain, and we're going to do that in one second and before we do however i want to make a note to the rest of the software undergrounders who may be listening to this show uh, I am planning or attempting to plan if there's any any interest to meet up in Austin. So if you are in or near Austin and want to come hang out with some other software undergrounders, uh, that is a thing that we're going to make happen at some point in May. So I'm open to dates and uh, preferences and interest. So find me on Software Underground. Matt, you didn't write the question in here. Uh, yeah, no, sorry. You I like to have it in here because I like to I like to put links to the to the reference material. Yeah, good. Well, let, let's start with Bain. Um, what are you reading at the moment? <laughs> like what's on your bedside table? <laughs> Book wise, I mean. Oh, what else? Uh, like a milk carton? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, grad school hasn't been uh, hasn't sort of facilitated much much casual <laughs> reading. <laughs> just just a bunch of casual data viz programming. Yeah, to, to be to be kind of frank, there's usually an iPad with uh, like code documentation websites pulled up <laughs> next to my bed. Um, yeah. Um, Can I do that? Yeah, I, I think I'm. I was reading like a Western a Western. Um, Sort of historical novel. I forget the name of it right now. Um, I'm completely brain blanking. But, but yeah, just I, I was reading a western lately. Huh. Yeah. A, a contemporary one, like um, I would uh, never for a western. It wouldn't even it had so I, I don't really know anything about that genre. But um, it's just a it's a book about sort of a western history in the U.S. Okay. Um, I see. Yeah. So so like. Um, so like cowboys and, and Native Americans and, and that whole realm of, of history. Right. Uh, like fact, fiction or nonfiction? Uh, nonfiction. Okay. So Is factual. that you would generally read nonfiction stuff? Generally, yeah. History of the United States. <laughs> yeah. 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 Matt, what are you reading? I'm also reading some nonfiction. Uh, oh, man. I thought you were going to say I'm also reading some Western. Okay. No. Um, okay. no, I'm reading, I, it was a bit of a sort of a impulse purchase on Kindle. I don't normally read on Kindle. I've, I've got Kindle on my, the Kindle app on my phone because I've got a few old Kindle books. And I was like, well, I should probably read these at some point. Uh, after I lost my Kindle on the plane uh, ages ago, I sort of forgot about it. And then I thought, oh, I could put it on my phone. Um, it's not the most satisfying reading experience in the world, I must say. Uh, but on the other hand, it's better than just aimlessly scrolling through Twitter um, 
at least I think it is. So I, I must say, just as a sort of tangential side note, I, I find Twitter increasingly, well, let's not put it that way. I find it decreasingly useful. I, it's, it's okay. I agree. <laughs> you really? You do? I do. I've been, so I've been, I made a push this week in or past two weeks to interact more with Twitter because my, my involvement in the Twitter community has dropped off a lot. I've just kind of lost interest. So I'm trying right now, I'm trying to re-engage. Yeah, I can't describe, I can't quite put my finger on what changed. Maybe I've changed, like maybe it's not you, it's me. But no, it's, um, happened, it's happened to independent personalities at least. Yeah, Hopefully. maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. I mean, not good, but I mean, that makes me feel slightly less curmudgeonly. Um, <laughs> I've also I'm uh, I've deactivated my Facebook, and I think I'm deleting it next. Um, so I don't know. I don't want to be completely isolated. <laughs> just have my. Eventually, it's just my only social media contact is my blog, which I type with my fists. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, anyway, back to. So what I'm reading is Seth Godin's latest. I haven't read Seth Godin for a long, long time, but um, it's called "This Is Marketing," and it's not. Oh, it, I mean, it is ostensibly about marketing. He's a marketer, but it's also about um, it's about culture, really, and you know, communities. I would say, and I, I, I really like his core message, which you get in the first ten percent of the book. <laughs> I feel like you could read the first ten percent of the book, and then basically the rest of it is sort of churn on that idea, but. Um, yeah, I like everybody in oil and gas marketing needs to read his stuff because, it, you know, marketing in our in industry is, is just vapid. Um, and we've gone on about that before, or I have. Um, so I'm sort of quite enjoying it, but I think I might stop reading. I, I yeah, guess. you're past the 10% mark, you're good. So uh, I, I'm reading a book right now that's called um, The World Without Us by Alan Weissman. Mm. Uh, it is depressing. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it kind of is. It's kind of a it's kind of a, a treatise on what happens when humans aren't on the planet anymore. I'm not totally sold yet, uh, but I did want to mention. I don't. I can't recall if I mentioned this in the last episode or not. But um, I just finished a book called. Uh, Never Home Alone, which I thought was really fascinating. So that one is about um, all of the creatures that live inside of our homes with us. So um, you'll have to wait until ne next episode for me to get through the world without us to give you a real recommendation. But definitely Never Home Alone is awesome. Yeah, okay, that does sound good. Um, I feel like I think my wife would enjoy that as well. Because cool. um, we have three massive bugs in this house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks, uh, Bain, for joining us on Understandable Radio. Hope to have you back. Yeah, I want to. I, I totally want to see where your research um, ends up because you, you've done so much already and created yeah. some amazing looking tools. So I uh, can't wait to see what happens when you go around applying them to all sorts of different problems. 
Yeah, I look forward to, to expanding on it and um, I'd be happy to share some more when we, you know, develop it out. And uh, thanks for having me on the show today. Excellent. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.